Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by a hugely inspirational individual, not only for me, but for I know many other athletes in the world, and will become even more inspirational as his new book drops, The Complete Athlete, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I really want to welcome Ziad Corey to the show, my high school soccer coach from back in the days at Newport Harbor High. Z, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chapin. It's a pleasure to be here, dude. Like, what an amazing journey you're on right now. What an amazing journey we had, you know, whatever it's been, like, what, 20 years ago? <laughs> exactly. It was. Time <laughs> long, flies, man. I know. And you're still the same bubbly self that you always are, super motivating to many people and, and doing really cool things. And before we get into all that, let's just please let our audience know a little bit about you, where you come from, and maybe how you came to America, because you're Lebanese by birth. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. Where'd you grow up in Lebanon? I grew up uh, during the Civil War in Lebanon. Unfortunately, you know, before I was born, Lebanon was the place to be. When, you know, through my childhood, unfortunately for me, the Civil War started in Lebanon. So it was pretty tough times, you know, when I was growing up. I was there till I was about 15 years old. And my memories of Lebanon is just the Civil War. And, you know, it was pretty hard. You know, the, the worst type of war out there is a Civil War. And uh, unfortunately for us and for the, the, the entire Lebanese people and the entire generation, my generation, we didn't uh, see what we heard about Lebanon. You know, the, a beautiful place and all the great things. Uh, fortunately for me, when I got back to Lebanon after I came to the States after the Civil War, I got to see the beautiful Lebanon. Uh, during the Civil War, it was it was pretty hard, you know. It's just, you know, you had to continue your life going to school. Um, hanging out with your friends, trying to play football, trying to play soccer along the way. And um, all that gets interrupted suddenly, you know, by a, a battle or, you know, shelling or bombing. And then you got to adjust a couple of days later and move on like nothing happened. Yeah. When you're living in it, you don't think about it that much because you're adapting but when you get out of there and you reflect back at your days down there and how you did it and, you know, how you were able to block some tragic things that happened along the way and move on the next day like nothing happened, it's pretty, it's pretty stunning. It is so. crazy, the human capacity to just be in the moment under circumstances and still find joy and happiness in your daily Absolutely. routine. Well said, Chapin. I, I couldn't paint a, a better picture than that. It's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, you adjust and you... You know, from really being sad of losing a friend or a family member and then seeing the littlest things in life that makes you happy. And I think that carried with me coming to the States. You know, I'm, I'm always happy. I'm always grateful for everything that God um, puts in my life. I right. know there's a reason for it. And uh, I'm a man of a, a strong Christian faith. So so it's like um, it, it as much as when I reflect back, it made me the person that I am today. And I'm extremely grateful to that. Did you have to serve? Like, did you have to do any fighting? Were they pulled? No, I didn't. Uh, but um, all my friends, all my relatives, my brother, um, I didn't get to the age, the, you know, 
to to go on the battles and stuff like that. But um, you know, every household had members or relatives or my brother. You know, watching my brother going to fighting my older brother, it was it was just um, part of life. Mm-hmm. It's just part of life. You know, you know. So. And you discovered your first passion in Lebanon soccer. You know, it's or it's, was that your first? Maybe that it was my first passion. Uh, luckily for me, my middle brother was a, a Manchester United fanatic in the 1970, and uh, he was a George Best diehard. So when I grew up, I all Wasn't I could George see George Best a huge like alcoholic. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I was just a young kid. But, but he was I, a phenomenon. He was phenomenal. Like the Messi of his time. He was the Messi of his time. And um, you know, when I used to walk in my brother's room, all I see is posters of soccer players. So that was my first introduction into soccer. And then, you know, I have a my twin brother, so me and him would get a ball and just play in the hallways of our buildings and you know, our apartment where we lived and and then it just, I grew with it because my brother kept watching games back then and I would go with him and, you know, live in his shadow, following him around. And then they go to this little theater or little uh, place where they can watch, uh, you know, games. And the 74 World Cup, I remember that, like, I was six years old and that's the first World Cup that I watched. And it was, it was black and white back then. And it wasn't in your home. It was in another location. Of course, yeah. You go to a central location where they had like one TV and there was like a hundred people trying to watch it off one TV back then. And then that was my introduction into, into football. And then, and then my dad uh, moved to Dubai in 1978. And I remember my second World Cup, which was in Argentina, and it was in color TV. And I got to watch it at home. With my dad. So in Dubai. In Dubai. Oh no way. I didn't know yeah. you spent time in Dubai. I did. When Dubai, when no one knew even Dubai, what it, you know, Dubai was not the Dubai that you know right now. It changed a lot. So my dad was the general manager for RC Cola and he worked in Dubai from 78 to 83. So every summer I would leave Lebanon and go spend it with him in Dubai. And, uh, the 78 World Cup was that summer and that was like right there. I knew that was my passion. It was it's incredible to watch. Were you ever playing for any teams in Lebanon? I was, yeah. I was, you know, I was very luckily for me and my brother. We're very athletically gifted. We were extremely fast. And, um, you know, by watching games and hanging out, we, we grew up in a, in a little bit rough neighborhood in the, in the Christian side in Lebanon. And, um, football was a way of life, you know, not organized. Uh, soccer. I don't know what to call it soccer or football. I'll call it soccer for today. <laughs> so it wasn't organized, you know, 3v3, 4v4 pickup games. And then when I was in the sixth grade, the top club in that area, you know, found out about me through the school system and they invited me to come with them. And I, and I played with them as well as was one of the top clubs in there. And when I went to Dubai to visit my dad, you know, I would I, you know, I'll go try out for the top club in Dubai and, you know, within like three hours, like, hey, we want him. He can come and train with us for the entire summer. And it was like athletically, you know, me and my brother were very gifted with speed and, and the game, which is something we picked up during, you know, watching and just playing against other, other guys. When you, before you got picked up by the team in Lebanon, what kind of pitches were you playing on? Like, just... Oh, streets and dirt and in between cars and hallway, whatever you can find and, you know, making up a soccer ball or, you know, the whole neighborhood have one soccer ball and you have to wait when you get it and <laughs> where to get it. And, you know, people screaming at you when they hit the windows or the windshield and a guy running down the street trying to beat you up because you just hit his car. And, you know, it's just, it's truly, it's, 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 that's the beauty of soccer. You know, I think that's why it's, it's the people's game. You know, you, you can play it anywhere. Um, you don't need expensive equipment. You can play 
that's why it's the people game mm -hmm. and, and just, that was our biggest thing anytime we had free time we just wanted to run wherever we had and try to pick up play a pickup game when you got pulled into the club systems was it like you're now it was weird you know it's that strange my, my first memory of that is finally seeing a grass field <laughs> and you know just being on a grass field and just like oh my god is this how a grass field feels you know it was it was that was my 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 most vivid memory of anything you know just being on a grass field with like 20 guys of and just like going oh my god you know i never been on a grass field before all we played was dirt fields and as you know um astrodeck asphalt no it was not astroturf just just straight straight street you know and yeah. you fall down and your knees scrubbed and your legs and you're bleeding so just being on a grass field for the first time was like wow that was like I remember that like now were you living with the club or going after school to practice with the no club? over there you go after school so basically i went to school and then i would come home and change real quick and just run and the club luckily for me was about 15 minute walk um over there kind of like europe you don't drive a lot you know everything is walking or... but you're walking during a civil war yeah, oh yeah <laughs> and it was a tough 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 neighborhood to get into so, but you know, it's really weird when, when you're in it, you don't think about it that much. You just mm -hmm. adapt and this is the way to get there and you just get there with your boys and then you leave and you get home and then you hear a couple of people being shot in the same way you walked uh, two days ago or yesterday or the day before. So it's, it's just, it's really weird. Till you get out of that environment, you don't realize the environment you were living in. Right. So when you come to the States and, you know, and people's like start asking a question about the war, you're like, man, did I really live through this? Mm -hmm. Wow. That was pretty dramatic. But when, that's, when did you come to the States? When you're 15? I was 15 years old. Why? How'd you get here? Why, it's you uh, really weird. So my two brothers, um, in the middle of the civil war, they left to the States to get education. My cousin's been living in the States since the 1960s. So they were able, my mom communicated with my cousins and they were able to get them to enroll in the university, Southern Illinois University. And um, so my cousins arranged that and they were able to come to the States and they ended up graduating from Southern Illinois University. And then one of them um, graduated in computer science and moved to California where his best friend lives uh, from high school back in Lebanon. And um, he lived in Newport Beach. So the Civil War was really peaking uh, at the time, and um, my mom felt that me and my brother were going the wrong path in a lot of ways, you know, being more involved on the, you know, all our friends are joining the military, and, and kind of the way, like, you migrate, you know, you, whatever your boys are going, you're, you're heading that way. So she spotted that, and um, one day she woke us up, and she said, hey, you're going to the States. Uh, I totally resented her for that. I'll never forget it because I was like, man, you know, I'm happy. You know, I was at the time 15 year old, popular in school, you know, playing for a, a good club. And um, I thought life was perfect. But my mom definitely saw something I didn't see coming. At the time, I didn't see it. But right now, I think it was one of the greatest things she ever done. Yeah, I think I want to just touch upon what you just stated because I think for a lot of listeners, the fact that you used happy in civil war in the same sentence is not heard of, yeah. you know, like, and I think it's a good indication that a lot of us Americans, because we live such a good life, perceive these other countries who are more impoverished than we are as just being poor, unhappy people. 
when that's not the case at all. Like you had a oh, very was... happy childhood there, even though you were surrounded by bombs and guns and, and you were able to still maintain happiness. And yeah. I think Lebanon is a great place. You know, people in Lebanon are very lively and, um, um, it's probably that race adapted or made the best out of situation of a war than any race in, I think, in the humankind <laughs> history. You know, Lebanese people in general are happy. They love to party. They love to have a good time. There's a lot of family. Family is very, very strong. Uh, and um, Lebanon is, at, you know, still during the war, still a, geographically a, a beautiful place. It's, it's just stunning. You have beaches, you have snow, you have mountains. So everyone tried to make the best out of it. And mm. you're absolutely, I never reflected back at it because at the time I thought life was perfect. And why my mom is doing that to me, you know, pushing me somewhere where I cannot even speak the language, where I don't know anyone. You hadn't studied English at all. Uh, when I came here, I barely can speak two words. No way. Yeah. So you land in Newport Beach, California. I land in Newport Beach. And, um, you know, luckily for me, after two months of being here or like six weeks, um, I, with my limited communication skills, I was able to befriend Richie Collins, who was at the time one of the best, you know, becoming one of the best surfers in the world, and Todd Miller and Cordell Miller. And, uh, you know, all of them come from Newport, and uh, we became really, really close. How did you meet him? Just on the beach? Or? On the beach, you know, it's really, it's a really cool story. You know, me and Walid could not communicate, but for one reason or another, a lot of the girls wanted to hang out with us. <laughs> And I think we pissed off the local boys, which was them. And, uh, one, one night, uh, Walid asked, you know, walk up to them because we could see the same guys coming to 40th all the time, which is the street we lived on and the street like you lived on for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we see them coming and they won't talk to us. And me and Walid got sick of, you know, trying to communicate just with girls, you know, where's the boys? Mm-hmm. So Walid reached out to one of them and the guy's like, Hey, you know, I just want you to know we were thinking about beating you and your brother up. <laughs> <laughs> and um and then we invited them to well he's like oh we're we gonna have like a little get together in our house and um with our very limited communication skills because i i owe everything to those boys they they helped me and Wali to get confidence uh in ourselves and um yeah, speaking the english language they stayed persistent on us helped us out so much and um being with that crew which it was very accepted you know i mean they were the local heroes in Newport Beach and just being, you know, part of that crew and the brotherhood that we had with these guys. What, um, what age were they compared to your 15? Uh, we're the same age. You know, oh, okay. Richie was almost the same age, maybe a year younger, Todd, maybe a year younger or a year older. We're all, you know, Cordell, we're all the same, you know, around mm-hmm. the same, maybe a two year gap Got here it. and there. And, um, were you going to school? Uh, I did. I went, uh, I went a semester to Costa Mesa High School. And then after that, I went to OCC. But I, I started playing with the team. Actually, I was a leading scorer in the summertime for the team. For and OCC then, or Costa For OCC. No way. Yeah. And then, and it was a great team. They went on to win the state that year. But I could not continue playing for them because I needed to carry 12 units. And, um, I couldn't carry 12 units. You had to be a minimum of 12 units. And at the time, I was working. Cause I, you what know, was your first job? My first job was construction. My second job was valet parking. <laughs> my third job was cleaning bathrooms. <laughs> wow. So those are the type of jobs I was, you know, like anything you can find around Newport. And, you know, your buddies are around. Hey, this boat is going to Catalina. Or you can do this. Or, hey, John Thomas just opened up. I can get you in valeting over there. And 
those are the side jobs. And back then in the 80s, you didn't need that much to live. You didn't need to make that much to have a comfortable life. Newport wasn't the Newport that everyone see right now. It was, very, you know, it was a very local community and people took care of everyone. And Richie, you know, luckily for me, Richie became really successful on the tour and he bought a house and all I did is live there for free and just took care of his bills. And um, so I always... So those were my first couple of jobs till I got back into soccer. It's a cool connection, actually, because Richie used to shape my surfboards back uh, in the day. I worked in wave tools, too. And he actually taught me some very valuable lessons about like just the structure of a surfboard, and which I use now in teaching. I always reference Richie in, in some of my he tutorials online. He was amazing. Online. He was a very blessed shaper and, um, and, and, and a surfer and a human being. You know, I, I, I know, I hope Richie will hear this. I mean, I owe a lot to Richie Collins and Todd Miller. They, to me, those two guys were, they influenced my life a lot more than they ever, ever would think. That's they were cool. there for, and Cordell Miller. They were always there for me. Yeah, Todd's coming to Nicaragua next week. I'll be serving with him. Tell him I said hello. I will. I will. <laughs> he was my roommate for many years. So, I will. Yeah, we so, were roommates for a long time, me and Todd. So then when did this whole soccer thing start to grow in America for you? Okay, so right before the 94 World Cup. Uh, I was doing, started doing private lessons, you know, and, um, soccer lessons, soccer lessons. And I started with a, a kid named Alessio Smith who lived upstairs from me on Fourier. And at the time he was playing for the biggest club in Southern California, which is called the Paradores. And, uh, I started doing some private with him and he got better. And so a lot of the boys on that team, you know, he started like, who are you training with? So they, you know, they go like, yeah, it's Ziad. So my private you know, uh, clients start getting bigger and bigger. And then um, I was at the Greek Orthodox uh, Easter festival in a, in a, I'm Greek Orthodox. So we were, it was our Easter actually, and we're playing a game and I met Frank Klopas. Frank Klopas was in the, with the U.S. national team in the 1994 World Cup. He went on to play in, in the World Cup and played in Greece and Became the, and played back with Chicago Fire and became the coach of Chicago Fire and Montreal in the MLS. And now he's, he works on the, uh, um, announcing the games for Chicago. So me and Frank became extremely close. We basically have the same background. He was born in a village. I was born in a village. He's from, you know, Greek Orthodox. I'm Greek Orthodox. And we just hit it off. And, you know, I, Frank would wake me up every morning, like at 4.30 in the morning to go get ready for the World Cup, the 94 World Cup. So we train for like two and a half hours, get breakfast at Ceci Bone, and then go back in the afternoon to Caron Del Mar High School and chip in balls for Frank. And um, along the way, there was... Is he a player in the World Cup? He was oh, a coach, yeah. you said. No, no, oh, he's he a player. Oh, okay. Frank, um, Frank played in the 94 World Cup, and then he went on to play professionally in Greece. He was one of the first American players actually to sign professionally in Europe. Hmm. And then came back when the MLS started after playing in Greece and he played for Kansas City Wizards and then he finished with Chicago, which is his hometown, and they won the MLS Cup and the MLS title. And then from there, he took a couple of years off and got involved back into coaching and he coached uh, uh, Chicago Fire in Major League Soccer and he coached the Montreal uh, in Major League Soccer and uh, now he's taking a little break and he's on uh, announcing all the Chicago Fire games. Wow. So... A mutual friend of me and Frank, a Greek guy, started a boys team. And um, he asked me and Frank if we can coach the team. So we both agreed to it for $500, which I thought at the time was a fortune. <laughs> and, um, and then so the team was, um, 
was really weird because the first team, you know, uh, we asked the boys, what do you want to name the team? They said Slammers. And I didn't understand. I go, what's Slammers? And Tyson Wall, who played in the MLS and graduated from Newport Harbor, and he played in the U20 World Cup. He goes, yeah, it's a game in and down in, at, um, in the island where you slam things. <laughs> and I go, all right, you want to call it Slammers? We call it Slammers. So that's the team. It was me and Frank in 94. Frank ends up taking a professional contract in Europe to go play back in Greece. So I'm left alone with the team. And um, as you know, at that level, at that time, the, the, uh, a new team starts at the lowest level in, the United, in, in Southern California, which is the hottest bet for men's soccer at the time. The majority of all the World Cup team players came from here. So it was, it was an unbelievable era, especially with that team age group. And um, so I started with Tyson and we went from third division to second division to first division to the premier division and then um, started another boys team behind it and did the same route, which was very hard to do back then, to do it every year. And uh, we became one of the strongest teams in Southern California. And then, you know, part of that equation, there was Michael Munoz who played in the MLS. Sasha Kleshin, who I was still in a great relationship with, played U.S. national team player. He's playing right now with uh, Orlando. He played in Europe with Anderlacht. Uh, Gordon Kleshin, his brother, played for me too. So first slammers, you know, claim to fame on the boys. was <laughs> Soccer was through the boys. And then after three years of, you know, playing on the boys level, four years playing on the boys level, this lady came up to me. She said, I have a really, really good girls team. I love the way your teams play. Could you coach it? I said, absolutely. And actually, uh, it was Nomar Garcia Parra, which was a very famous uh, baseball player at the time, shortstop for Boston Red Sox. His sister was on the team. So I ended up taking that team, and we ended up being on the cover of Frosted Flakes two years later. Um, and that was uh, the, the first female Slammers team? That was the first female Slammers team. And then my twin brother picked up a, a, an AYSO team, and he and that team played in the Final Four and then made it to the finals of State Cup. And then within three years with the girls, we already wrapped a national championship, and we already been on the cover of uh, a cereal box, and we already been in a national final, <laughs> which was, you know, unheard of. <clears throat> you know, brand new club coming in, competing against South Cal Blues at the time, which was the strongest club in here, and Mission Viejo Soccer Club. So the two strongest clubs known for women's side in the world were within four miles of us mm-hmm. or 10 miles radius. And then we didn't even have a field. You know, we won our first world championship playing in Sweden um, when we trained in the parking lot. So the city of Newport first was very hard for them to accept, you know, soccer, surfing is the thing here and, you know, slammers and who's slammers. And, and then in a very, very short period of time, we became one of the most recognized um, women clubs maybe in the world. So, and when you first started um, with the men's, were you was that your sole income? That first slammer scene was that it the was, only way you were I did that on private, and basically it was day to day living. You know, there was um, there was no it was just day to day living to say the least. Between what I made from the team, and then you pick up privates, you know, whenever you can after practice, before practice, the days when the team is not playing. And then from one team, I moved to two teams and then to three teams. And I was able to step away from private and just focus on just coaching. And then just being in here in this hotbed of soccer, it, you grow quick, in, you know, as a coach. Because you're sitting on the hands of very good coaches from all over the world. You know, either they're coaching because their kids are playing or they're ex-former you know, players that played in England and all over Europe. 
So, you know, if you really, if this is your sole income and you try to make a living out of this, you know, you couldn't ask to be in a better environment than the environment that I was in because I was competing at a very young age against extremely, extremely uh, experienced coaches that, you know, I'm the type of guy, I'm a quick learner. So when I got back in my car and took a whipping from them, I would reflect back, you know, all the things that they did right and how I need to improve to one day be like them. What were some of the things that you noticed, like, it really stand out to you after you just... You know, to me, uh, my biggest plus, I'm a great motivator, you know, naturally. You know, I'm positive. I, I believe in myself. I, I have no fear of any obstacle. Uh, the bigger the obstacle is, the more I'm, I want to tackle it. Um, the tactical aspect of the game, you know, I'll never forget it. Specifically one game when Marcelo Balboa, dad, Louis Balboa, playing with the boys... And he did, and he did two tactical changes on me in the midfield and turned the game from a 0-0 game to a 4-0 game. And I got in my car and I just like, man, this guy just took me to school. And this will never happen again. <laughs> it will never happen. <coughs> I got caught in a, in a, in a very emotional frenzy during the game and I forgot to watch what tactically is going in the game. So, and you know, those are the, those are the type of people I went against. And then they cared about me so much because I think few of them saw like a young guy that want to make it in this where they took the time and it was very kind of them and very nice of them to take the time and say, I did this. And this is why you lost the game. Oh, they took you aside and yeah. just kind of said, broke yeah. it down for you, what yeah. they saw and where you were weak and how they... Absolutely. And I never was shy to ask. Like that I would, if I found them the following week or two weeks later, it's like, hey, you know, what did you do? Tell me. I know you took me to school. But <laughs> what did you see that, you know, where you exposed me and, and the game shifted? And, and they were kind enough to share some of this information with me. And like anything else, I study my craft really hard. You know, I, I seek all the information I can. I spend a lot of times after I finish my games to watch better coaches, more experienced coaches, listen to them, you know, see what they're doing with their teams. It was my life. And, you know, to me, I figured out I have to make a living out of this because right now it's my only source of income. So that puts you to another, you know, survival state. So it was just a perfect storm, perfect time. Uh, I think I was very, very blessed with the, with the players that got sent my way and we made the best out of it. Yeah. I think it brings me to a great point to try to share my story with you because you take responsibility for your life. I mean, you took responsibility, as you just described, for becoming the best coach you can. Tactically, you're a naturally good motivator, so then you have the maybe weaker side of tactical. So now you're just taking responsibility for that, searching for better ways to improve that. And I still to this day, and I talk about it in multiple other past episodes when I tell the audience a little bit about me, which was <clears throat> after a game, which we had just lost, Newport Harbor, and, you know, some of the guys are grumbling about, oh, the ref did this, like didn't make the calls for us. And you just said, stop. Everyone needs to take a look at the responsibility that they played in the loss from today. You know, none of you are taking responsibility right now. And for some reason, the way you said it, the timing that you said it, like a light bulb went off of me. And it wasn't just soccer. It was my life. I wasn't taking responsibility for my life. Wow. Change. And it was like changed my life forever. Like wow. seriously. Man, I am, I am humbled, man. It's like the most profound thing that ever happened. Like there's multiple other things and people that have been in my life that like really changed. But like that moment for me was like lightning bolt. Oh. So. I loved it. Newport Harbor was, was a great, you know, opportunity for me. Uh, a local high school that 
never won the league. You know, we were in the toughest league, maybe in the United States CBO League. We had Santa Margarita, Woodbridge. And Santa Margarita was, every player on that team went on to play in the MLS, literally their whole starting lineup. And there comes Newport Harbor, you know, <laughs> there's eight teams in the league. We're seated number eight. And then, I, you know, I met with you guys, said, hey, man, we need to work out in the morning. We need to work out in the afternoon. We need yeah. to. And then we went from 10 people watching the game to the entire school coming to back us up and then shocking everyone and winning the league and going to the, you know, state semifinals. Yeah. And we should have won that game if it wasn't for a bad referee call. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was awesome. You know, it was just to see the growth, you know, and, and believe it or not, I grew with you guys too. Right. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a great time for me to, to be around young men and, you know, hold myself accountable with my behavior and what I do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the end of the day, when you're a coach, you're a role model to your players too. So that I reflect back at Newport Harbor. It was amazing. And to touch that school and the students in that school and to see the love that they gave us, you know, in the, in the beginning where, you know, it was football and we went through a good era, you know, Misty May, April, Ross, you know, the football team was undefeated. I mean, it was probably Newport Harbor golden era and to fit a, a men's soccer team in that equation and to get the entire school to back us up. I mean, you couldn't find a parking spot mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone's rallying behind us and we beat a lot of great teams. I, you know, I remember forget going down to Santa Ana to play Santa Ana. We beat them two to one and people are shocked like here comes these bunch of surfer guys escort we had a police (laughs) escort and and the principal's like everyone duck (laughs) remember that ligada he's like everyone duck it's like man you know we went it was it was you you reflect back at that and just to see the beauty of this game you know we came in and that's the hardest thing was in newport because newport was basically a surfer community with a high school that had an extremely successful water polo team uh, on a world level extremely successful football team and on a volleyball level probably the best talent in the world between what i mean all these guys went on to win the olympics and gold mm-hmm. medals and to come in with a sport that you know newport just like who you know <laughs> men's soccer and then you know and you know i i give a lot of credit too for uh lee Gata. he gave us you know he was the principal at a time and uh Anything I needed, you know, I needed the gym at five o'clock in the morning. He gave me the keys to the gym. You know, we need the field at six o'clock. He figured out the time to get us on the field. Uh, when I told him we need to get out of this field, it's not good enough for us. We need to go to elementary. It will, it will suit us. And, you know, I don't know if you knew that, you know, I used to show up at 11 o'clock. I lined that field up by myself. I put the flags and I set up all the goals by myself before every game. I did not know that. <laughs> I did that by myself. That's amazing. <laughs> that was one of the things that Lee Gator told me. He goes, I'll give you the keys for it, but you're responsible to set up the field because it's not on school premises. So I'll do it by myself. Wow. Yeah. Good for you, man. Thank you for doing that for us. <laughs> oh, man. My pleasure. So now, I mean, I wasn't in the know until I came back and shot, not shocked, but I was just like, Slammers FC is huge, dude. It's all over the country. <laughs> like... Is it not? I mean, it's franchise. Like you have, it's we've very, been very, very blessed. We we've won twelve national championships. We've been in uh, um, eighteen finals. We won twelve. We won three world titles. We produced players that went on to win the World Cup, the Olympics. Uh, we have uh, multiple players in every national team level. Very impactful on the national team level. We have multiple players that are playing for national teams all over the world. Uh, Mexico. Ireland, Holland, um, South America teams. 
um, it just, it, it's been an amazing journey. You know, me and Walid has been, we've been very, very, very blessed. The club moved from two teams to four teams to 40 teams to 80 teams. A lot of the teams that we used to play against in uh, national events liked what we did. And then, you know, we, fr- we were able to franchise in Washington and Hawaii, uh, franchise all over Southern California. And we've been very blessed. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the, my, my greatest compliment, you know, forget about all the trophies and everything else, is when you mention the word slammers, it's the experience that the parents tell you about their time in here. Tell you, you know, it's a very positive experience. Uh, our kids learned a lot about life, learned about being better people and better human being and held accountable. And, um, you know, we're very blessed on the, on the soccer part of it because I think we've been racked for multiple years for putting a huge amount of player in Division One on scholarships. Every college coach would love to have a slammer player, and not just because they're great players, because they know they're getting a, a complete athlete, a complete mm. human being. So that's one of the, beside all the success, the most important thing is your reputation. And when people bring that club name up, you know, what is, that's what I tell the kids, you know, people, you don't want people to remember you as a great player. They want, you want them to remember you as an amazing human being, great person, great person, oh, she was or he was a great player. But the first thing should come out, what a beautiful human being. So, you know, to me, we haven't lost that core. We haven't lost that principle as much as we've grown. You know, I just had a, a coaches meeting two weeks ago talking, talking to our coaches about moral and, you know, and being in slammers, you know, the moral responsibility you hold your players accountable to. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the concept behind your new book, which is the complete athlete that you and Waleed have written. Absolutely. Can you talk us through that and like the, from page one to the end, like the philosophy of it? That in- So the complete athlete is, um, without a doubt in my mind, it's on its way to become a New York Times bestseller. It is a tool for every youth parent and every coach and every player to read. It's, it, it will help them in so many ways. Uh, for parents, it is a must because you know, the kids, as a young player, you're trying to talk to your parents, but the parents really are not understanding the kids, like almost speaking two different languages. And I'll just get, I'll give a simple story in the complete athlete that defined that. You know, uh, you know, when a player, when you're a young player and you're taking a, a shot or you've gone on a breakaway or you missed a goal, your first look is never to the coach or your teammate. Your first look is to your parent. And if you see your parent clapping and cheering you on, you're going to take that shot again. And you're going to take it again. And eventually you're going to score. If you see your parents turning their back or putting their head down and emotionally just feeling disappointed, they feel that they disappointed you. So the next time they're going to have a chance to take that shot, they're not going to take it because they don't want to disappoint you. You know, when parents read this book and there's great soccer players in it, girls that played at the highest level, girl that won the NCAA title with Stanford. Mia Hamm, to me, the greatest player of all time, and, you know, women's soccer is where it is today because of her. You know, the stories that she shared in this book about, you know, her level from being a youth player to being, uh, you know, high school player to being a collegiate player to being a professional level and all the things that she dealt with. You know, I love, I love, I'll share one of Mia's stories, you know, in the, in the chapter, in the, in the first pillar of the complete athlete. You know, she talks about 
her dad yelling at a referee and him getting red carded and how much that impacted her. So the book covers everything, it covers a, a little bit about nutrition, fitness, it, it covers the journey, it helps parents to understand you know, what the players are feeling and what they need from them and how important their support. You know, to me, the players need so much support from the parents, a lot more than the parents think they do. And, you know, it talks to the coaches about how to deal with players and the parents. And for the players, the responsibility and always reinforcing the point of them being great human beings. You know, staying after practice, helping someone, being kind, being responsible in your community, because that's what makes you, in, in, in that what makes you a great player. I mean, I always share that with my players. Say, hey, you're starting. She might be number eighteen. Five years from now, this kid could be interviewing you for a job. They're going to impact you and your family. And how's she going to remember you? Is she going to remember you, the the kind person that reached out to her and stayed with her and tried to help her? When she left the game and she didn't play and her head down and you came and wrapped your head around, your arm around her and said, Hey, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't win this. You're the one we're training with every day. You made me who I am today. So these are, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, 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 you know, a lot of people have read it so far and uh, from players to coaches to parents and the feedback has been unbelievable. Uh, players reading it multiple times, parents like calling or leaving an email or a text like, this is unbelievable. This is going to help me so much to be able to communicate with my kid. And I finally see it because it gives you the whole journey, you know, from, you know, from being a youth player to going to high school. If you make it to collegiate level, the pressure, you know, all these that prepare you to be successful in a collegiate level. And if you're fortunate enough to be on a professional level, you know, what are the things that are waiting for you? And it comes out, you know, uh, some of the best players. Again, I love Mia Hamm's stories. Anson Dorrance, which is, to me, the greatest coach in women's soccer. And he he endorsed it. He loves it. And That's it's great. just it's just a great, great read. And it's a great book. And it's a must for every parent, player, and a coach. And so they can find it on Amazon right now? Yep. All right. Yep. Complete athlete, written by Don Yeager, nine-time New York Times bestseller. He wrote uh, John Wooden last book, Walter Payton last book. Uh, he wrote The Blind Side, uh, the gentleman from The Blind Side book. Um, and you know, when we talked to him about it and broke it down for him, he's like, "I'm on board." And um, I think this will be his tenth New York Times bestseller. <laughs> this is so cool, man! Congratulations on all your successes because you're not living day to day anymore, like hand to mouth. I mean, you have a nice house here on the beach, and you really are one of those classic uh, American success stories that you, Thanks, know, you came from a foreign land and you got a piece of the pie, dude. Congratulations. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I want to share the pie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming, Z. We appreciate having Chapin, you. Thank you so much. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with everything. And I'm privileged that you came over here and I've been a little influence in your life. It's a privilege for me, man. Thanks, brother. Love you. All right, Love you too. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that 
maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.